السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وخاتم النبيين محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد سبعت اللسنز We gather for the final, the fifth and the final part of the commentary of Surah Al-Munafiqun. Allow me to summarize the contents of the Surah so far. A simple translation will suffice. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, when the hypocrites come to you. إِذَا جَاءَكَ الْمُنَافِقُونَ قَالُوا نَشْهَدُ إِنَّكَ لَرَسُولُ اللَّهُ وَاللَّهُ يَعْلَمُ إِنَّكَ لَرَسُولُهُ وَاللَّهُ يَشْهَدُ إِنَّ الْمُنَافِقِينَ لَكَاذِبُونَ When the hypocrites come to you, they say, we testify that indeed you are surely the messenger of Allah. And Allah, Allah knows and Allah knows that indeed you are surely his messenger. And Allah testifies that indeed the hypocrites are surely liars. اتخذوا أيمانهم جنة فصدوا عن سبيل الله إنهم ساء ما كانوا يعملون They have taken their oaths as a shield. Thus they have prevented from the way of Allah. Indeed, evil is what they do. ذَلِكَ بِأَنَّهُمْ آمَنُوا ثُمَّ كَفَرُوا فَطُبِعَ عَلَىٰ قُلُوبِهِمْ فَهُمْ لَا يَفْقَهُونَ This is because they have believed and then disbelieved. So a seal was placed on their hearts. Thus they don't understand. وَإِذَا رَأَيْتَهُمْ تُعْجِبُكَ أَجْسَامُهُمْ And when you, when, when you see them, their bodies please you. وَإِنْ يَقُولُوا تَسْمَعْ لِقَوْلِهِمْ And if they speak, you listen to their words. كَأَنَّهُمْ خُشُبٌ مُسَنَّدَةٌ Though in reality they are like planks of wood propped up. يَحْسَبُونَ كُلَّ سَيَحْتٍ عَلَيْهِمْ they perceive every shout, every scream to be against them. They are the enemy, so fear them. May Allah battle with them. Whence are they being turned? And when it is said to them, come. Allah's Messenger will seek forgiveness on your behalf. They turn their heads. 
And you see them blocking, preventing, whilst being arrogant. It is equal to them, for them. Whether you seek forgiveness on their behalf or you don't seek forgiveness on their behalf. Allah will never forgive them. Indeed, Allah does not guide the transgressing people. They are the ones who say, do not spend on those who are with the Messenger of Allah. Until they disperse. And to Allah belong the treasures of the heavens and the earth, but the hypocrites do not understand. They say that when we shall return to the city, i.e. of Medina, the city, Al-Madinat Al-Munawwara, the mighty will expel the lowly, from it. And to Allah belongs might and honor and to his messenger and to the believers. But the hypocrites do not know. That's a quick translation of the verses of Surah Al-Munafiqun that we've covered so far. And the, I've, I've explained all of these verses in great detail. And what Allah has told us so far is that in the beginning, Allah speaks of the hypocrites in general. Allah mentions their false testimony, their lying, their swearing false oaths in the name of Allah, how they have taken these false oaths and their taking of Allah's name in vain as a shield for protection. And by doing so through their false testimony, their lying and their false prom- promises, they have prevented themselves and others from the way of Allah. They have believed and disbelieved, believed and doubted and disbelieved, believed externally, disbelieved internally, believed hypocritically, expressed faith hypocritically, but disbelieved within. And because of this deception, this hypocrisy, they, they, their hearts have been sealed. Then Allah speaks of a more narrower group. Allah narrows this down to a select group of the hypocrites. These are the leading hypocrites during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the chieftains, the leaders. They were the ones who were powerful, influential, charismatic. They were the leaders. They were wealthy. They commanded great influence, wielded great power. They were eloquent, influential, charismatic, appealing, very handsome even. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about this leadership amongst the hypocrites, this particular group, narrowed down from the more general group, in the previous verses. And then Allah speaks of them. 
Then Allah narrows us down even further to mainly Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, who was a chief of the chieftains of the hypocrites. And Allah refers to some of the things he said and did, especially in the fifth year of Hijrah during the campaign of Banu Mustaliq, also known as the campaign of Muraysir. And on that occasion, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was guilty of a number of things, and especially his comments mentioned and quoted in the past two verses, which are that he is the one who said, do not spend on the companions of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Why? And as you know, the backdrop to the story is that he, there was a dispute between an Ansari and Muhajir, two companions. This led to some disagreement and calling of partisanship amongst the companions, but the problem was solved. It was suppressed. It was quelled. But Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, when he heard that, he made a few comments. One of them was that I've told you repeatedly about these emigrants from Makkah al-Mukarramah who have come to Medina, that our example and their example is like the ancient Arabic proverb, that fatten your dog, it shall devour you. And this is what we have done. We've accepted them into our homes. We've accepted them as refugees. We've shared our wealth, our homes and accommodation with them. We've welcomed them only for us to fatten them and now for them to lord over us. They have crowded us in our city and in our wealth. And now this is what they do. So he then said the solution to this is stop sharing your wealth with them. Stop spending on them. Impoverish them. And soon they will leave. They will depart from our city. We will be relieved of them. So that's one of the things I mentioned. And that Allah mentions that in the second last verse to this. And then in the final verse, Allah quotes something else which he said about Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Not just about the Messenger of Allah, but he was, pits- he was pitching himself against the Prophet of Allah. That I, the Aiz, the mightier one, along with my followers, the mightier ones, will expel from Medina the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the lowly one, who is a leader of the lowly ones. So we, as a group, shall expel the Muslims. So he quotes that. Uh, sorry, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala quotes him. So these are two of the things he said. This is where we ended the previous sessions of the commentary of Surah Al-Munafiqun. And we now move on to the final section. So allow me to read the final section and it's, uh, I'll just translate the verses and then I'll begin commenting on these three final verses of Surah Al-Munafiqun. So hereafter Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu la tulhikum amwalukum wa la awladukum an dhikrillah. O believers, do not let your wealth and your children. Do not let your wealth, nor your children, distract you from the remembrance of Allah. 
And whoever does this, then these are the ones who are the losers. And spend of what we have bestowed on. Spend of that which we have provided for you. Before death comes upon one of you. Then he says, at the time of death, O my Lord, would that you delay me till a close time for a saddaq so that I may give in charity and so that I may surely be of the pious and Allah will never delay a soul when its fixed time arrives Allah is well aware of what you are doing These are the three final verses of Surah Al-Munafiqun. And as you can see, the topic now has suddenly shifted to wealth. And the theme here is not being diverted and distracted by one's children and then Allah focuses on wealth by one's wealth. Now whoever is distracted and diverted from the remembrance of Allah by one's wealth and children, which are tests, then these are the losers. And then Allah encourages us to spend. And spend before death arrives. Before it's too late. Then at the time of death, a soul says or thinks, says either to itself or to anyone else or to Allah, praying to Allah that, oh Allah, give me more time. Give me some respite. Delay my death. Delay my departure. So that in this interval, in this respite, I may do two things. One, give in charity. And two, become of the pious. But Allah ends the surah by reminding us that a soul's appointed and fixed time will not be delayed for anyone when it arrives. And Allah is well aware of what we are doing. So the theme is not being distracted and diverted from the remembrance of Allah, from our true purpose, by wealth, and spending this wealth and not being stingy, but giving in charity and death. The question here is that why is the final section of Surah Al-Munafiqun disjointed from the rest of the Surah? Is it disconnected? Or is it a continuation of the topic of hypocrisy? And is there any connection between these few final topics and the theme of hypocrites and hypocrisy. Well, indeed, there is a very deep connection. There, there's no disconnect here. 
there's no sudden change in the topic of the surah. That in fact there's a beautiful connection. And the connection is as follows. As we've just heard in the penultimate surah, a verse of the section that we've covered so far, Allah cites Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul's words about not spending. They are the ones, the hypocrites, and namely Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. They are the ones who, do, who say, do not spend on those who are with the Messenger of Allah. Until they disperse. This is deeply connected with the final part of the surah. What Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us is that this is the thinking of the hypocrites, of the munafiqun. For the munafiqun, it's all about the show. It's all about show. It's all about cosmetics. It's all about appearance. It's all about what's apparent. Their thinking, their perception, their belief, all of these things are very shallow, very superficial. They are not deep or profound in any way whatsoever. They only see the surface and nothing beyond it. Their thinking is so shallow and superficial that their faith, their belief, their trust and confidence, all of this is, in just, is just in wealth. They think everything is determined by wealth. They think the world runs on wealth. They think the universe runs on wealth. They think wealth is the only thing that makes the world go around. Go around. They think that just as they believe only in wealth, everyone else believes in wealth in exactly the same manner. And this is why they thought that, and in fact this is hypocrisy, this, this is a trait of the munafiqun, not of the mu'minun. That money will buy everything, money will solve everything. Wealth doesn't solve everything. Wealth doesn't buy everything. And this is what they thought. That, oh, these muhajirun have come from Mecca to Medina. And they've become a burden for us, a problem for us. So the solution is, is simple. They, the muhajirun, are refugees... They are hungry, thirsty, in need. They're in need of wealth, in need of food, in need of accommodation, in need of help. They are refugees. So the solution is simple. We don't want them. The best way to expel them is to withhold money from them, withhold wealth from them, withhold food from them. And because they are, they, they thought that they are just as greedy, money-oriented, wealth-obsessed, and lowly and as superficial as we are, the moment we hold, withhold money from them, they'll go away. They'll leave the city, they'll disperse, they'll go elsewhere. 
They'll find money elsewhere. They'll look for money elsewhere. This is the shallow and superficial thinking of a munafiq, not a mu'min. A mu'min doesn't believe in wealth like a munafiq does. A mu'min sees beyond wealth, has a greater purpose. A mu'min isn't bought and sold just by wealth. And indeed the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, did they come to Al-Madinat Al-Munawwara and did they do hijrah for the sake of wealth? Far from it. They risked life and limb. They sacrificed families and their home city and their birthplace. And they sacrificed all of their wealth and undertook a hazardous, long and arduous journey to Allah and His Rasul wasallam, out of pure sincerity. And this is why Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam mentions that. Well, we know of that famous hadith of Hijrah related by Umar ibn Khattab radiyallahu the very first hadith found in many introductions and books and the very first hadith of Sahih al-Bukhari. That deeds are only by intention. So whoever's Hijrah is to the world. then all to marriage, then indeed his hijrah is only to that to which he has emigrated. Which speaks about the sincerity of intention. And the reason Rasulullah mentioned these words about sincerity of intention and purity of motive, specifically about hijrah, is at that time from the first year of hijrah all the way till the eighth year of hijrah, leading up to the conquest of Makkah al-Mukarramah, the greatest act of worship in Islam was hijrah to Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa was reminding them that even in this, yes, it's dangerous, it's hazardous, you, one undertakes great risks, but even in such a risky, long, hazardous, arduous journey, in which there wouldn't normally be any element of insincerity, even in that, review your intention, be mindful of your sincerity and purity of motive, and ensure that you only do hijrah for the sake of Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This is why when Uqbat ibn Abi Mu'ayt's daughter, who was an un previously unmarried virgin young lady, according to some narration, she was only 19 years of age, she travelled alone from Makkah al-Mukarramah after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, to Al-Madinat Al-Munawwara, pursued by bounty hunters and members of her family who tried to capture her and bring her back home. She undertook the journey alone from Makkah Al-Mukarramah. Eventually, when she arrived in Al-Madinat Al-Munawwara, even for her, Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, by the instruction and command of Allah, and that's the theme of Surah Al-Mumtahina, to interrogate these Muhajirat, these emigrant women, to ensure that they have not emigrated from Makkah to Medina for marriage or for dunya or for any other purpose. So Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam interrogated her. She was the first person to be interrogated. He interrogated her and he asked her many questions. Have you come for wealth? Have you come for dunya? Have you come for any other purpose? And then his final question to her was, 
have you only done hijrah and come from Mecca to Medina out of the love of Allah and the love of his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam? And she attested and confirmed that and said yes. So that the thinking of the muhajirun, of the mu'minun was sublime, was lofty. It went far beyond gold and silver, dinar and dirham, pounds and pennies. Because that is the state, that is the thinking, that is the belief, that is a perception, that is the outlook, that's a world view of a mu'min. But a munafiq is cheap. And a munafiq thinks it's all about dinar, dirham, gold, silver, pounds and pennies. It's all about wealth. That wealth will buy everything, wealth will solve everything. And that's why Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Sarul said, Oh, these muhajirun have become a burden on us. They are, everyone thinks of the other as they think of themselves. We, we, everyone's a mirror to us. We see others as we see ourselves. It's remarkable. Those who are innocent and humble and soft and sensitive and good-natured, well-mannered, of good character, of a soft demeanor, those who are dignified, people with these traits and qualities, for some reason, as part of their nature, they are trusting, credulous, and they believe everyone else to be just as they are. This is why, unfortunately, they are often beguiled and deceived and taken for a ride and taken advantage of and exploited. Good guys can last. And, and conversely, those who are bitter, cynical, suspicious, doubtful, and especially cynical, those who are malicious, those who are exploitative, driven by greed, those who are insensitive, those who are willing to trample on others. For some reason, they think the world is just like them. So they believe that they are sharks in a sea infested by sharks. And their motto, their attitude to life, their approach is kill or be killed. Their approach is you either devour or be devoured. We're swimming with sharks. So it's dog eats dog world. It's a dog eats dog world. Be ruthless, unforgiving, unrelenting. Because they see everyone as themselves. We hold others. We hold a mirror to ourselves and we see everyone as being a mirror of ourselves. So the munafiqun thought these muhajirun are just like us. It's, it's a subconscious process. It's not like very deliberate and it's not a very deliberate and conscious process that, oh, they are just like us and they think like us and their perception is like ours. No, it's just natural. Subconsciously, 
they believe, naturally they believe, that everyone is just like us. So it's simple. They've become a burden on us. Stop spending on them. It's all about money. Stop spending on them. If you stop spending on them, because they are money-driven, wealth-driven, greedy, hungry, lowly, cheap, as soon as you stop spending on them, they'll go away, they'll disperse, they'll leave Medina, they'll go elsewhere, they'll follow the money, they'll follow the food, they'll go for scraps. That was the thinking of Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Sarul and his henchmen of the Munafiqun. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ends that verse by saying وَلِلَّهِ خَزَائِنُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَلَكِنَّ الْمُنَافِقِينَ لَا يَفْقَهُونَ And to Allah belong the treasures of the heavens and the earth but the hypocrites do not understand. It's because their thinking is shallow. The mu'minun, their perception was far different. Their outlook was very different. Their gaze went beyond the wealth of the dunya. Their gaze was on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the akhirah. These are the traits of nifaq and hypocrisy when it comes to wealth, when it comes to the dunya, when it comes to the world, a world view and outlook. This is why here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continues that theme. It's not a disconnect, it's not a sudden shift and change and transition from the topic of hypocrisy to charity and wealth. No. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu la tulhikum amwalukum wa la awladukum an dhikrillah. O believers, let your thinking, let your perception, let your worldview, let your outlook be that of believers, of mu'minun and not of the munafiqun. Do not think it's all about money and wealth, because that's shallow. That arises from a lack of understanding, just like the munafiqun. For whom la yafqahun, they don't understand. So, realize that wealth, your riches, your dunya, all of this is a test from Allah. And do not let these tests of children, of wealth, distract you, divert you from the remembrance of Allah. وَمَنْ يَفْعَلْ ذَلِكَ فَأُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الْخَاسِلُونَ And whoever does this, i.e. whoever allows his children and his family or his wealth to divert him, to distract him from the remembrance of Allah, from the ibadah of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, from the akhirah, then these are the losers. They are the true losers. They will suffer a great loss. I've mentioned in a series of talks for a few weeks on the topic of fitna, what fitna means. Fitna simply means a test, a trial. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us. In fact, in the very next surah, after Surah Al-Munafiqun, Surah Al-Taghabun, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu inna min azwajikum wa awladikum aduwa lakum fahdharoon. 
وإن تعفوا وتصفحوا وتغفروا فإن الله غفور رحيم إنما أموالكم وأولادكم فتنة والله عنده أجر عظيم فاتقوا الله ما استطعتم واسمعوا وأطيعوا وأنفقوا خيرا لأنفسكم ومن يوق الشح نفسه فأولئك هم المفلحون Allah says, O oh believers, indeed, of your spouses and of your children, there are your enemies. There are your enemies. So fear them, be wary of them, beware them. But, but if you excuse and you overlook and you forgive, then indeed Allah is most forgiving, most merciful. What does this mean? This is actually a reference, according to many ulama, again on the topic of hijrah, that there were a number of Muslims who had embraced Islam from Makkah al-Mukarramah, in Makkah al-Mukarramah. They wanted to do hijrah like the others had done hijrah, from Makkah to Medina, and join Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. However, pressures of family, of spouses, of children, prevented them from doing so. So their children stopped them. Their wives or their husbands stopped them. As a result of which, they relented and they remained behind. They didn't do the hijrah. But eventually they did. Later, they arrived in Medina al-Munawwara. When they arrived in Medina, belatedly, and they did hijrah at a later stage, and they saw how much they had missed. They saw how they had lost out. They saw that the other muhajirun had surpassed them, far exceeded them, and had gone beyond in ilm and deen, in knowledge and in religion. What did this do? This created bitterness in their hearts and resentment towards their own children and family members who were the cause of their delay and of their being kept behind and of their regression. They became embittered towards their own children and their own spouses because they held them responsible for their being held back in religion. They held them responsible for being prevented from doing hijrah earlier on. They held them responsible for the loss that they had suffered in knowledge and in religion and of the company of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And some of them sought to discipline them or reprimand them, punish them. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, and the meaning of they are your enemies, not that they are your bitter sworn enemies. What a good way of understanding this verse is, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu inna min azwajikum wa awladikum aduwallakum fahdaruhum That, O oh, believers, indeed, of your spouses and of your children are your enemies. A good way of understanding this is by adding the caveat, your inadvertent enemies. Your unwitting enemies. So they don't want to be your enemy. They don't hate you. They don't wish to harm you. But because of their naivety, because of their lack of understanding, because of their lack of faith, their lack of knowledge, their lack of religion, 
because of their differing and incorrect priorities, you will go along with them, you will relent to them, and you will suffer as a result. So, they will cause you harm, though it's not their intention. That's the meaning of, they are your enemies, your inadvertent, your unwitting enemies. فَحْذَرُوهُمْ So be wary of them, beware of them. And then Allah said, fine, whatever's happened has happened. Now is not the time to punish them. Rather, if you excuse, you overlook, and you forgive, then indeed Allah is most forgiving, most merciful. Then Allah says in the next verse, this, these few verses are from the next surah, after Surah Al-Munafiqun, from Surah Al-Taghabun, that, O oh, believers, indeed, of your spouses and your children are your enemies. Therefore, beware of them. And if you excuse, overlook, and forgive, indeed, Allah is most forgiving, most merciful. And then Allah says immediately, Your wealth and your children are nothing but a test. And by Allah, and it is Allah by whom there is an immense reward. So indeed, our wealth and our children are a test. So allow me to speak of children first, because this is the lesser part of this section of Surah Al-Munafiqun. How are children a test? Exactly as Allah has said, inadvertently, unwittingly, without realizing, without intending to do so, they may be a hindrance and an obstacle and an obstruction to your progress in deen. Subhanallah. When it comes to the dunya, if a person wants to study, gain a qualification, build a career, earn money, no one thinks of giving their spouses, their children, Priority. It's remarkable. So when it comes to dunya, time with children can be sacrificed. Choices are made. And a person focuses on their education, their career, their climbing the ladder, their acquiring wealth, their accumulating wealth, at the expense of the spouse of the family, of the children. And though some people may complain, when it comes to the choice, people make the choice. My career or my children? My wealth or my children? My job or my children? People make the choice. And most of the time, we know who, where the choice lies. Is it with the family, the spouse and the children? Or is it with the with one's own personal accumulation of wealth and career, and one's own pursuits. So, <clears throat> even in dunya, we will not allow our children, or our spouses, our wives, our husbands to become an obstacle, or a hindrance, or an impediment to our progress. So then, the message of the Qur'an is, why and how would you allow your children and your spouses to be a hindrance and an obstacle in your relationship with Allah, your Creator? 
or in your progress. In your own salvation, in your progress of the Akhirah, in your progress in knowledge and thee. Our wealth, our children are a test. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us these things, wealth and children. But it's like someone being given something. So imagine, uh, it's a very crude example, so uh, please bear with me and forgive me. But imagine that someone gives us an item. And then they monitor us. They actually observe us. So let's say a team, a team of people give us an item. And they tell us that we're giving you this, and then we're going to watch what you do with it. We're going to observe you. We're going to test you. So we receive the item, and then we are fully conscious, fully aware that they are monitoring, observing, and watching us. How will we behave? We know it's a test. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us the dunya and everything that it contains. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is watching and observing us to see what we do and how we fare. If a team gives us something and then tells us that we're watching you, we're observing you, and then we take the item and begin playing with it, the team will conclude this person is a child. That's what children do. Even when a group of adults give a child something, what does the child do? The child takes the item and becomes totally absorbed, fully engaged with the item, distracted, unaware, oblivious to everything and everyone else, becomes utterly obsessed. And we're not talking about an older child, we're talking about an infant. So it's almost as though the infant does not remember or does, is, is oblivious to the presence of a whole group of adults. And that toy, that item of interest, f- fully, engage, is, fully engages and absorbs the child. And the child is absorbed by it, immersed in it, totally diverted, totally distracted. But we expect that of children. We find it cute. In an, in an infant, we'd find that cute. If an older child did that, we'd be concerned. We would be concerned. Something very personal, but I remember my father, rahimahullah, one of my younger brothers. We... The nurses, he went for these tests, as young children do. Now he was just over, about three or just over three years old. And my father went with him to the, not the nursery, but to the clinic, because they did all these tests then. There were standard tests, and this test was for hearing. So I went as a translator for my father, I was a child, but and my young, one of my younger brothers, 
I still remember he, he was given these toys as part of the test. And then the nurses would give the toys and then they'd go around in different parts of the room and they'd clap, they'd call out the name, they'd try to get the child's attention. And children normally turn around and look. But this younger brother of mine at that time, he was utterly obsessed with all the toys. He wouldn't turn around, he just wouldn't listen. I do not lie, this in front of the Qur'an. The nurses suspected that he's deaf. And that's what they related to us. And it was, it was a matter of concern. They had to repeat the tests because he just wasn't listening to anyone. He was totally absorbed. He wasn't paying any attention. And my father used to forever laugh about this because it initially caused him great concern as well. But he knew that it wasn't the case. But uh, he feared that maybe there is some truth to what they are saying because he may not be entirely deaf, but partially deaf, subhanAllah. So, but forever afterwards, he used to uh, remember this fondly and always smile and laugh about it. But there we are. So, in a younger child, in an infant, we'd find that cute. In an older child, it'd be of concern. In a teenager, we'd be very worried. And if it was an adult, we'd send him to the hospital. and the one that gives you a checkup from the neck up, not below. So not, uh, not for any physical illness, but for a mental illness. If, a ch if an adult behaved like that, where they took an item despite knowing and being told that you are being observed, monitored and watched, and this is a test, they lost sight of that and became distracted by this item and allowed it to become a thing of play and jest and became totally absorbed in it, immersed in it, oblivious to anything and anyone else, then that would be a question of their mental health. But this is it. This is where we are. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us the dunya. This is why in a hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, listen to the words. In the, he says, إِنَّ الدُّنْيَا حُلْوَةٌ خَضِرَةٌ وَإِنَّ اللَّهَ مُسْتَخْلِفُكُمْ فِيهَا فَيَنْظُرُ كَيْفَ تَعْمَلُونَ Indeed, the world... Indeed, the dunya is hulwatun khadirah, sweet and lush. Wa inna And indeed, Allah is deputizing you, meaning making you a sovereign therein. I.e., we live in the world, we command and control much of the world around us. So why has Allah given us the dunya? And why has He given us control therein? Fayanzuru kayfa ta'madun. Then he observes and watches what ye do. Allah has given us the dunya, and Allah is watching us, observing us, monitoring us. Like a child is monitored, what are you doing? This is a test. Allah has given us children. Our children are a test. Our spouses are a test. Our families are a test. Prophet sallallahu He was giving a khutbah and Hassan and Hussein radiyallahu anhumah, his grandchildren, came running in the masjid wearing red shirts, overshirts, two little grandsons 
running, stumbling, falling over themselves towards the mimbar. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam stopped his khutbah, descended, and in front of the entire congregation, seized both Hassan and Hussein radiyallahu anhuma and lifted them up into his lap and sat them there. Then he said, Verily Allah has spoken the truth, إِنَّمَا أَمْوَالُكُمْ وَأَوْلَادُكُمْ fitna." That your children and your, your wealth uh, and your children are nothing but a test. He said, I was giving the khutbah and when I saw these two grandchildren of mine, I could not help but stop my khutbah and come down and grab them. إِنَّمَا أَمْوَالُكُمْ وَأَوْلَادُكُمْ fitna." Your wealth your, and your children are nothing but a fitna. So children are a test. Allah says, O believers, do not allow your children to distract you and divert you from the remembrance of Allah. So in that verse of Surah Al-Taghabun, what does Allah say? Your wealth and your children are nothing but the test. And Allah by him is the great reward. Therefore, be wary of Allah as much as you can. And listen to Allah and obey. And spend. Spend. This is far better for you, for your souls. And whoever is protected from the greed and avarice of his soul, then these are the ones who are successful. So, muflihun, who are the successful ones? The ones who spend. And who are the losers? Allah says here in Surah Al-Munafiqun, those who allow themselves to be distracted by their wealth and by their children. You see, we have to adjust our thinking. This is the reality. When Allah says these are the losers, and Allah says those who spend are the successful ones. We shouldn't just read and pass by. We should try to really absorb this message. It's about that same outlook, the world view. What guides us, what drives us? The truth is, our thinking, Allah has given us brains. Allah has given us minds. And we see and we think, but you know what? If you buy any tool, look, smartphones. Smartphones are very advanced. And they have a simple thing on them a compass. But the first time you use a compass, and not just the first time, but very frequently on a smartphone, what does it tell you to do? Do you just pull out the phone, open up the compass, and then accept whatever direction it's showing you? Do you? No. What do you do? It tells you, wave it about in eights. You calibrate it. You adjust it. If you don't calibrate the compass on your phone, it'll still show you all the directions, but they'll be totally out of whack. Whack out of order. So it's functioning, it's working, but it's not calibrated. 
So it tells you, go through all these fancy motions in order to calibrate your instrument. You need to do that with spirit levels. You need to do it with digital items. In fact, many of these health monitors, they go out of sync very quickly. So medical companies actually tell you that return them, these machines and these medical instruments, blood pressure monitors, blood glucose monitors, and various other things to be recalibrated by the company. Because they continue to work. The spirit levels will continue to work. The compasses will continue to work. They'll give you all the readings. The monitors will continue to work. They'll give you all the readings. And everything appears to be fine. But the experts tell you, the manufacturers tell you, that do you know what? Although it appears to be fine, you have to calibrate it at its first use, and you have to frequently recalibrate it. Otherwise, despite everything appearing to be fine, it'll give you wrong readings. The readings will be wrong. North will be south, and south will be north. A hundred will actually be a hundred and forty. You have to recalibrate these high-precision instruments. They'll give you readings, but they'll be wrong. So the manufacturers tell you, calibrate them, recalibrate them. And don't try to do it yourselves. Send them back to us. We'll recalibrate them for you. Allah, our Creator, has given us minds, has given us brains, has given us sight and vision. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has also told us, calibrate your vision, calibrate your minds, calibrate your Brains calibrate your thinking. So we do see things. Of course we see things. But our vision is distorted. We understand things, but our understanding is distorted if it's not calibrated. So we have to adjust our thinking. We have to recalibrate according to the measure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When we recalibrate our thinking to the measure of Allah, then we will see light for light, Darkness for darkness, truth for truth, haqq for haqq, and batil for batil. We will see success for success and loss for loss. Right now, without that calibration, we see success where there is loss and we see loss where there is success. And let me give you some examples. So here Allah says, Whoever allows himself to be distracted by his wealth and his children, these are the ones who are losers. In Surah Al-Taghabun, as elsewhere, Allah says, Those who spend and are protected from the greed of their soul, these are the ones who are successful. It's sad, but do we see success in these things? No, of course we don't. Do we see success in salah? No, we don't. Five times a day we hear, Hayya ala salah, hayya ala falah. Come to success. Do we see falah in salah? No, we don't. Do we see wealth in giving? No. We think that if you give, you lose. And if you take, you gain. Riba means, we know that riba means interest, usury. 
What's the original meaning of riba? Riba, interest, usury in Arabic is riba. What's the original meaning of riba? Riba yerbu means to flourish. It means to grow, simply. It means to grow. So you put £100 in an interest-bearing account. Over time, if it's 5% per annum, it becomes £105. So the £100 have grown to 105 That extra 5 that growth, is known as riba. That's the riba. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the verse of the Qur'an, whatever you place of your wealth with the people, so that it may grow, فَلَا يَرْبُوا عِنْدَ اللَّهِ It does not grow with Allah. وَمَا آتَيْتُمْ مِنْ زَكَاةٍ تُرِيدُونَ وَجْهَ اللَّهِ فَأُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الْمُضْعِفُونَ But whatever zakah you give seeking the countenance of Allah, then these are the ones who actually multiply their wealth. So we see riba where there is no growth in reality. And we see loss where there is actual riba and growth. So we need to calibrate and adjust our thinking. We see loss where there is success. We see success where there is loss. For us, subhanAllah, our losers are winners with Allah. And our winners are losers by Allah. The word loser in the English language, someone says he's a loser, she's a loser, you're a loser. It's an insult. What does the word loser mean? You're a loser. You're worthless. No friends, no worth, no value, no recognition. You're unwanted. You're lonely. You're, you're unpopular. You're so unpopular, no one likes you. Hey, even I don't like you. You're a loser. Allahu Akbar. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, There are many who are disheveled and unkempt, driven away from the doors. But if they were to swear in the name of Allah, Allah would not allow their oath to go unfulfilled. They are beloved to Allah. Our losers are winners with Allah. And our winners are losers by Allah. Truly. We think winning is hitting the jackpot, getting a good job, Having a good car, a good home, lots of money. That's winning. Allahu Akbar. If that is winning, do you think Allah's prophets, والسلام, lost? If that's winning, did the Messenger وسلم, lose? If that's winning, did the Muhajirun Sahaba radiallahu anhum who sat in the Sufa and who shed tears, and for whom and with whom Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam shed tears, were they losers? We need to calibrate our thinking. When we do it, we will see loss for loss, and success for success, and winning for winning. It's in everything. It, we really have to, right now, our compass is north, when it should be showing south. 
we need to calibrate our thinking 180 degrees. <coughs> Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal and Imam Tirmidhi and others relate a hadith from Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha. She said once <coughs> a goat was slaughtered and it was distributed, its meat was distributed to the needy and the poor in the way of Allah. So the Prophet said to her, O Aisha, how much of it is left? So Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha said, Ya Rasulullah, all of it has gone and none of it is left except the shoulder. Except the shoulder of the goats because all of it had been distributed except the shoulder. So the shoulder remained. <clears throat> so she said, Ya Rasulullah, all of it has gone and the only thing that remains is the shoulder. So the Prophet wasallam said, No, O Aisha, all of it remains except the shoulder. All of it remains except the shoulder. Meaning, ma indakum yanfada wa ma indallahi baq. As Allah says, that which is with you will perish and that which is with Allah is everlasting. We need to calibrate our thinking. Our thinking is not what Allah and His Rasul wanted it to be. Who's a champion amongst us? The big, hefty, well-built guy who floors others, who beats others, who thumps and pounds others. He's the champion. Undisputed champion. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says in a hadith related by Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim from Abu Hurairah radiyallahu an, and Imam Malik. لَيْسَ الشَّدِيدُ بِالسُّرَعَةِ إِنَّمَا الشَّدِيدُ الَّذِي يَمْلِكُ نَفْسَهُ عِنْدَ الْغَضَبِ The champion isn't one who floors others excessively and repeatedly. The champion is one who controls himself at the time of anger. That's not who we consider a champion. A champion is one who rages and vents his anger on everyone else. Rasulullah sallallahu said he's no champion. The champion is one who beats himself, who beats his soul, who overcomes and controls his soul. He's a champion, not others. Like I said, our losers are winners by Allah and our winners are losers in the sight of Allah. Imam Muslim, rahmatullahi alayhi. In fact, in another hadith, again, related to Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim from Abu Hurairah, radiyallahu an, famous hadith. لَيْسَ الْغِنَى عَنْ كَثْرَةِ الْعَرَضِ وَلَكِنَّ الْغِنَى غِنَى النَّفْسِ Richness, wealth, is not from excessive goods and possessions. Wealth is the wealth of the soul. Rather, wealth is the wealth of the soul. When a person is content with what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given him or her, and is satisfied with that distribution of Allah, that is richness. That is wealth. Wealth is not the wealth of the hands. Wealth is the wealth of the soul. These are the words of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Who's the penniless one? Imam Muslim rahmatullah relates a hadith in his Sahih. And so do others. Atadruna mal muflis. 
Do you know who is the penniless one? And penniless is a very precise translation of muffless. Because for those of you who study Arabic or ulama amongst you, what's the meaning of muffless? Filth means a piece of a coin or a coin. Filth actually means a penny, a cent, a coin or part of a coin. That's the meaning of filth. Fulus, filth is the singular of fulus. We all know what fulus means. What does fulus mean? It's a plural of money. It means money, but it's, it's not singular, it's plural. It means coins, fulus. And fulus is a plural of filth. Filth is a penny or a cent or a coin. And fulus means cents, pennies, coins, plural. So muffless comes from filth. So if muffless comes from filth, surely muffless means the one who has lots of coins. No. One of the khasiyat of if'al is i'dam, meaning you're missing it. So a muffless is someone who misses even a penny. A muflis is someone who doesn't even have a filth. Forget fulus, who doesn't even have a single filth. That's the meaning of muflis. That's why the precise translation is, who is the penniless muflis? So who's the penniless one amongst you? So the Prophet wasallam said to the Sahaba, who's the penniless one amongst you? Do you know who the penniless one is? So the Sahaba said, the muflis amongst us is one who has no dirham and no mata'ah, no possessions, no goods, none. So the Prophet said, the muflis, the penniless one of my ummah, is one who will come on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, who will come with excessive salah, fasting, siyam and zakah, but he will come having verbally, abuse this person, accuse that person, unlawfully appropriated the wealth of that person, having hit this person. So then their deeds, their good deeds, his good deeds will be taken from him, given to them, given to them, all the wronged ones. Until when his good deeds expire and the account still hasn't been settled, then their sins will be taken from them and placed on his shoulders. And eventually he will be taken away by the angels for punishment. So he came with a lot, but ended up with nothing. So according to Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa the penniless one isn't someone who has no pennies to his name and no goods and possessions. The penniless one is one who has no amal and no deed to his name. Sahabi radiallahu anhu was martyred by the Quraysh. What were his final words? Fustu wa rabbil Ka'bah. I have won by the Lord of the Ka'bah. Our winners are losers by Allah. Our losers are winners by Allah. So... Whoever allows himself to be distracted by his wealth and his children, then these are the ones who are losers. Then Rasulullah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and spend of that which we have given you and provided for you. Spend. Be givers, 
do not be takers. Similarly, our thinking needs to be calibrated. We think that when we take, we are takers. But it's, it's the opposite. When we take, we are givers. And when we give, we are takers. Meaning, if you want something, if you really want something, then give, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you. But if you take it for yourself, you'll only end up giving away everything. If not in the dunya, then in the akhirah. So we think giving is giving and taking is taking. No, in reality, our giving is taking. I.e. give and you will take a lot from Allah. You take from the people and you're giving the people a lot of your own deeds and of your own wealth. Spend. Spend. We don't realize this now. We'll only realize when it's too late. That's why Allah warns us. Spend of what we have given you min This is related to Surah Al-Munafiqun. Why? Because hypo- <clears throat> our vision, our worldview, our outlook, our understanding of wealth should be that of the mu'minun, not the munafiqun. Our thinking shouldn't be superficial and shallow as it was of theirs. Bukhl, miserliness, is a trait of hypocrisy. A mu'min is free like the wind, like the free-blowing wind, i.e. a mu'min spends, a mu'min shares, a mu'min gives without reservation and with contentment. And it's a good way to be. In fact, scientists have proven psychologists and scientists that giving makes you happy giving gives you satisfaction sharing makes you happy it gives you a sense of fulfillment contentment and satisfaction it's good for your mental and emotional health genuinely those who give and who share they are actually very happy if not all the time it makes them happy Enough for much of the time. It really does. Volunteering, assisting, helping creates happiness. Stinginess creates misery. Miserliness creates misery. It really does. It creates paranoia. It's detrimental to one's mental health and emotional health. It makes a person bitter. Mr. Scrooge. True. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, give. Giving is a trait of a mu'min. Hoarding, accumulating, penny pinching, counting one's coins, hoarding one's wealth, and clinging on to one's wealth being tight-fisted and miserly and stingy is 
a trait of hypocrisy. Bukhl is a trait of hypocrisy. That's why Allah said earlier, وَمَنْ يُقَشُحَ نَفْسِهِ فَأُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الْمُفْحُونَ In Surah Al-Taghabun, in the verse I quoted earlier, whoever is protected from the greed of his soul, these are the ones who are successful. So Allah says spend. And before death comes upon you, because what happens? When death comes upon you, right at the last minute, Allahu Akbar, that's when a person realizes or begins to realize that it's getting late now, it's too late. Is there anything I can do? So Allah, the truth is we, we hoard all this wealth because we fear poverty, one. Two, we never... This may sound morbid, speaking of death, but death is a reality. It could happen to anyone at any time. In fact, it will happen to everyone, but it could happen any time. It can't be planned. It can't be planned. And Most people put off and defer thinking about death. And we live merrily and happily in a deluded state, acting and living as though death will never touch us. Well, if it does, yeah, you know, most likely when I'm 120 or 130, it could happen any time. So before death comes upon one of you, Spend of the way, spend of what we have given you, because your wealth is a test. And that's why in a hadith related by Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim and others from Abu Hurairah radiyallahu an, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was asked, ayyu sadaqati a'zamu ajra? Which sadaqah, which charity is of the greatest reward? So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam's reply was, an tasaddaq wa anta sahihun shahih. The best and most rewarding of charity is that you give in charity whilst you are healthy and whilst you are greedy. Whilst you fear poverty, and you hope for riches. What does that mean? It means that it's human nature, that as we are young and healthy, we want to earn, and we have dreams. So what unto sahih, that you give in charity now whilst you are healthy. We're healthy, inshallah. We can use that wealth. We can eat, we can drink. We can enjoy ourselves with that wealth. So we're healthy enough to do so. Shahih. We're still greedy enough. We still have a lot of ambition and hope. You know, we want to go for a holiday, possess this, own that, have this, have that. An extremely old person, what desire does that old person have? Their body doesn't support their desires. They are unable to fulfill their ambitions. Do you think an 80-year-old old, old man well, not 80, maybe you say 90, 95-year-old man who's frail and weak, 
he wants to be whizzing around in a sports car at that age. Maybe he wants to go mountain climbing. Do you think a 95-year-old man dreams of holidaying every year in the Seychelles? And enjoying himself, going for scuba diving and swimming? He's neither healthy, nor does he have these ambitions or desires. In fact, there have been stories, there's this one old man from India, walks with a hunched back, extremely old. People dispute his claims, but he claims to be well over a hundred, very, very old. He claims to have great, great, great grandchildren. But these claims aren't that far-fetched. I've told you before, I met, I visited India in 1992. And I met a few generations of a single family. So my host was a scholar. And he had, I met his children, his sons. And I met his grandchildren. So they met the grandchildren of the younger, youngest generation, their parents, his children, and he was my host. He was in his 60s at the time. I met his, uh, in fact, uh, older. So I saw him, his children, and his grandchildren. After Asr, he took me to see his father, who was working in the fields, monitoring uh, the farmers. He was, a, he was working in the fields, and he was monitoring the other workers. And then after Isha, after Maghrib Salah, he took me to his grandfather. And it was remarkable. He's a grandfather himself. And we went and we sat down. And the grandfather, well, when I went, I never knew. He never told me I'm taking you to. After Asr, we were walking in the farm. It was a beautiful scene after, just before sunset. And nature. And we were taking a walk through the fields. And there was an old man sitting with a staff on a chair. And he took me up to him and he said, meet my father. And then after Maghrib, he took us without mentioning anything and went into the courtyard of the house. And there was an old man lying down on the bed. And when he saw us, he sat up, bolt upright. He had an imama, a turban next to him on the right. He put that on his head. And he swung his legs over the palang, and he sat up. And then this scholar, along with us, he went and humbly sat down on his knees, and he said, Dada, he said, Grandfather, these are our guests, and then he introduced me. And he said, this is my grandfather. And his grandfather was happy, chirping away, talking, reciting poetry, and in fact, he wouldn't stop until it was uh, Adhan of Isha Salah. And then he said to his grandfather, he said, Dada, it's Isha Salah time, now we have to go. So he said, fine. He met us, took off his imama, put it back, swung his legs onto the balang, and lay down again. And two years later, in 1994, we received a letter from the same scholar who informed us that my grandfather has sadly passed away at the age of 132. That means when I met him, he was 130. So I met five generations in one day.
So some of these stories aren't that far-fetched, but th this old man, it's said of him, he walks around with a hunchback and he claims to be extremely old. And they interviewed him and he kept on repeating one thing, I'm sick and tired of life, I want to die. I don't, I don't have any desire to live any longer, I wish to die. One of the famous Arab poets, who, one of whose poems was hung on the Kaaba, the famous Seven Odes, one of the Al-Mu'allaqat al-Sab'ah. One of his couplets is, سَإِمْتُ تَكَالِيفَ الْحَيَاةِ وَمَنْ يَعِشْ ثَمَانِينَ حَوْلًا سَيَسْأَمِي I have become frustrated with the burdens of life, and whoever lives till 80 years of age will most assuredly become exasperated and frustrated. Who lives till the age of 80. So, when you grow extremely old, you don't have that desire. Some people want to die, they've got nothing to live for. So the Prophet ﷺ said the best sadaqah is that, that you give in charity when you are healthy. And not just healthy, but you are greedy. You still want to learn, you still want to earn, you still want to live, you still want to enjoy. You still تَخْشَ الْفَقْرِ وَتَأْمُلُ الْغِنَى You still fear poverty and you still have hope for acquiring riches. This is the best time to give in charity. Not, the Prophet ﷺ said, that you delay giving in charity until the soul is about to depart and it rises just before death and it reaches the neck and the throat. And then, when your soul is about to depart, i.e. you are on your deathbed, you begin to say, this is for funa, and this is for funa, meaning this wealth is for that person, this wealth is for that person. And the Prophet ﷺ ends a hadith with the words, وَقَدْ كَانَ لِفُلَانَ When it had already become for that person. I.e. you're just looking after it. It doesn't belong to you. You've got a million pounds in your account, that million does not belong to you by the words of Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam. They do not belong to you. You are merely its guardian. Your hairs are going white, you're turning white, you are losing your sleep, you are suffering heartburn and possibly a heart attack because of that wealth. You are suffering the radiation of that wealth. You are suffering the radioactive effects of that wealth. But it's not yours because it's not for you to enjoy, it's not for you to eat. That's why Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says in the hadith later by Abdullah ibn Shakhir radiyallahu an and Abu Hurairah radiyallahu an, recorded by Imam Muslim in his Sahih, that wealth is only of three kinds that belongs to you. In the hadith of Abdullah ibn Shakhir, Yaqul ibn Adam mali mali. قال وهلك يا ابن آدم من مالك إلا ما أكلت فأفنيت أو لبست فأبليت أو تصدقت فأنضيت. That man keeps on saying, son of Adam keeps on saying, my money, my money, my wealth, my wealth. Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said, oh son of Adam, do you have any wealth except that which you've eaten and caused to perish, or that which you've worn and worn out, or that which you have given in charity and therefore sent ahead for yourself? And in the hadith. Abu Hurairah radiyallahu an يقول العبد مالي مالي إنما له من ماله ثلاث ما أكل فأفنى أو لبس فأبلى أو أعطى فقتنا وما سوى ذلك فهو ذاهب وتاركه للناس Man, the servant of Allah keeps on saying my money, my money, my wealth, my wealth and of his wealth he has only three things that belong to him that which he has eaten therefore caused to perish Consumed and perished. 
or that which he has worn and worn out, or that which he has given, i.e. in the way of Allah, and therefore hoarded a treasure in his account by Allah. Apart from these three, whatever wealth there is, he is about to go and leave that wealth for the others. So what we have doesn't belong to us. We're only looking after it for others. So wouldn't you rather use it for yourself? And there's only so much you can eat. There's only so much you can wear. So the third limitless account of spending for yourself is by giving in the way of Allah. That's why Allah says, spend of that which we have given you. And this is truly related to hypocrisy. In another verse of the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And of those, i.e. the hypocrites, there are those who promised Allah and pledged to him that if Allah will give us of his wealth, we will surely give in charity and we will surely be of the pious. What does Allah say here? Give before, give of what we have given you before death comes upon you. And then at the time of death, one of you says, Oh my Lord, give me some respite and delay me a little so that I may do what? So that I may give in charity and I may be of the pious. That's exactly what the others said. So what did they do? When Allah did give them wealth, they were stingy, tight-fisted, and miserly. So Allah, they were guilty of bukhl, meaning miserliness, tight-fistedness. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says of them, As a punishment of their stinginess, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bred hypocrisy in their hearts. Hypocrisy which will last them till yawm al-qiyamah. So bukhl, is related to hypocrisy. Bukhl is a trait of hypocrisy, stinginess. It's not the characteristic of a mu'min. So Allah says, spend of that which we have given you before death comes upon one of you. And then at the time of death, one of you says, Oh my Lord, if only you would give me some respite and delay for a short time, for a quick while, so that I may give in charity and I may be of the pious. But that would be too late. Allah says, ends the surah by saying, Allah will never delay the appointed time of a soul when it arrives. And Allah is well aware of what you are doing. So although the surah ends with the topic of wealth and spending in the way of Allah, it's deeply connected with nifaq and hypocrisy for the simple reason that the outlook of a munafiq, of a hypocrite, is that wealth buys everything, wealth solves everything. One's belief and trust and confidence are reposed in wealth. And conversely, a mu'min, a mu'min's outlook is very different. A mu'min isn't just about show. It's not just about cosmetics or the veneer and the film and the appearance. And it's not just about gold and silver and all that glitters. A mu'min sees beyond that. And a mu'min earns wealth, truly, but earns it to share. And a mu'min spends of that which Allah has given him or her, realizing that this is a test from Allah to see what I do. And a mu'min is merely the guardian, because there's only so much a mu'min, any human being can eat and drink and wear. And truly spend, that spending should be in the way of Allah, so that the person can still accumulate that reward in his or her own account. 
And to Allah belongs the treasures of the heavens and the earth, but the hypocrites do not understand, as in Surah Al-Munafiqun itself. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand. May Allah make us amongst those who adopt the traits and the characteristics of Iman. May Allah protect us from the ill traits of Nifaq, hypocrisy, and the Munafiqun, the hypocrites. May Allah make us charitable. May Allah make us amongst those who share of their wealth, who give freely of their wealth. وصلى الله وسلم على عبده ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك